Welcome to Faith and Culture, Women in Ministry, presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. My name is Pastor Brian Kiley. In this session, session two of four, Pastor Lance Hahn will discuss Jesus's involvement of women in his ministry during his time on earth. We invite you to listen deeply and to engage this content with an open Bible and an open heart. If at any time any of this content raises questions for you, we invite you to email us at ask, A-S-K, at bridgeway.church. Now here is Pastor Lance Hahn with session two of Faith and Culture, Women in Ministry. Well, you are awesome. Thank you very much for being here once again right? And that we covered an awful lot of material last week. And so what I wanted to do is a little bit of a recap. We talked about God's initial creation. The creation was designed with perfect equality, unique roles, and incredible partnership, just like the Trinity. Adam and Eve as people had unique gender with equal value. And as husband and wife, equal but unique roles. We talked about the fall of mankind. The fall and curse brought about the hierarchy and the domination of men over women and an exacerbation of dysfunction into the home. So why were women cursed like that? Why were they cursed in the area where men would dominate? Because Eve betrayed her obedience for advancement. So women would be frustrated in subjection. We talked about the design and structure of the Old Testament, Israel. We saw how God had built around the hierarchy curse pattern and simultaneously designed Israel uniquely to demonstrate spiritual truths to the world. That Israel was built to show the ramifications of sin and the inability to save oneself. The whole point of the entire nation was to lead to the need of a Messiah. It was in this context, after thousands of years baking in this old system that Jesus came to earth, entered as a human Middle Eastern man. He walked into a living context. He was here to make it here on earth as it is in heaven. He was here to rectify what the devil had destroyed. He was here to reverse the curse, and he was here to return us to our creation design. He was about to go to the cross to do all of that. In order to lift us up, he had to stoop down and start from where we left off. So welcome to Jesus in context. Jesus, the Son of God, came in a certain way. He was male. He was Middle Eastern. He was common. He was Jewish. These are all a very unique cultural decision by God. He came at a certain time, that was 2,000 years ago, under a Roman government in a Jewish culture with international influence, right? So until we understand his context fully, we will never fully appreciate his teachings and his life example. What he did, what he said, differs dramatically upon the context in which he walked and talked. In other words, if you simply just open up Scripture without doing any studies about history, you're going to come to one conclusion, but if you go back and study customs and context, you're going to come up with a very different context. Let me give you an example. When Jesus said that he was the light of the world, it made a lot more sense that he was doing it during the Jewish festival of lights. Yeah? Then you go, oh, it had a bigger implication. It wasn't random. When Jesus called himself the son of man, every Jew at that time knew he was referring back to a Daniel prophecy where one like the son of man was brought out and given the kingdom forever and ever. That when Jesus said to his disciples, I will make you fishers of men, it made a lot more sense because they were fishermen. There you go. So obviously, you have to do a little bit of study and a little bit of research for those things to pop, for you to actually understand that what God is saying is not random, it's actually all designed. And when you see that context, the richness starts to come out. So that's what we're going to spend a lot of our time doing. So what was Jesus's immediate context? 
He was Jewish culturally, but he was living in Roman and Greek culture with international influences through his nation continually. That was a very big cross stream in the world. Anytime you're in the Middle East, you're going to have multinational influence at all times. All right, so here's what he lived in. Let's talk about Greek culture. 300 years before Jesus was a man by the name of Alexander the Great who conquered much of the world for Greece. After his death, his influence continued and it strengthened and it permeated most of the globe with what we now call Hellenization or Greek culture. By the time Jesus was born, it was the air that you would breathe. It's the reason why the majority of the New Testament is written in what? Greek. There you go. In Greek culture, women were assumed to be focused on the home. They were unable to own land, unable to vote, unable to inherit. Girls were educated the same as boys, except for a greater emphasis on being trained on gymnastics and the arts. But at the heart of it, she was being trained for the home. Young ladies were married around 13 to 14 years old. Girls were under their father's rule. Wives were under their husband's rule. If they had neither, they were to be given a guardian. Wives were to be faithful. Husbands were not. Wives could be priestesses in their religions. All right? But there was another culture. Yeah, Roman. Roman culture. They were the active government. The Roman Empire took over the Greek Empire in 31 BC. That's just shortly before Jesus. Roman culture, like Greek culture, believed in many gods. It loved the idea of worship of those gods. But with the infusion of the Roman emperor, suddenly emperor worship became a thing. While reason and determination ruled the day, religion certainly had its place. As the Roman Empire arose, women were just starting to break out as being able to do more and lead more, but it was still very much male-dominated, and women were very limited. The more wealth a woman had, the more influence. The one area where women were leaders was in religion. Mainstreams of Roman religion didn't even allow men to be priests, but only women. Girls were married early, mid-teens, though the wealthier were married even earlier. The focus for young ladies was to prepare themselves for marriage, which was to keep pure, to be modest, and have high reputation. The wealthier the family was, the more education she received, so most girls didn't get more than an elementary education. As children, boys and girls were treated similarly until they came of age. Then it started to change. Women were trained for the home and for society. Now, interestingly, women were allowed to own land and get involved in business, but just not politics. Women could not vote. And once again, wives were to be faithful, but husbands were not. Perhaps the most important cultural element of Jesus Christ, of course, that he was Jewish. With all these other influences in society, he would talk about things that would rebound off of society, but ultimately, he was a Jew through and through. So most of his cultural impact was from the, the Jewish people. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Even though Hellenism was rampant, Romans had taken over the Middle East. Him being a Jew was the most important thing about him. Now, some of the highlights we need to consider when talking about the subject of women in ministry is that we covered so much last week about the Jewish culture being patriarchal and hierarchical in structure. If you remember back in the Old Testament, you could look at the laws and women were not allowed to do certain things. For example, women were not allowed to make their own promises or oaths or covenants. Those had to be signed or agreed upon by either their father or their husband that women were not allowed to own land in many circumstances unless it was fought for. There's a bunch of issues like that. But fathers were in charge. Just as men were seen as dominant over women, fathers were the heads of their households and also the heads of society. Women ran the practicalities of the home. They ran the children. As you know, almost all, if not all, 
of the religious system of paid jobs in Judaism, which is the Levites and priests were all male. Women were not allowed to be any part of that. This left women doing layperson ministry work or just private prophetess work or personal worshiping. Women were not respected. They were not considered trustworthy. They were not allowed to be witnesses in court, to vote or hold office. But here's what's intriguing, and this is very sad. The sad thing is that in Jesus's day, as bad as this sounds, it was all about to get worse. Most of the struggles women had in Jewish culture happened even after Jesus. It got thicker and thicker and thicker. So Jesus's day was probably the lightest that women were subjugated, all right? But this is a big time to ask the key watershed question. Is a hierarchical structure, and what I mean by that is this person over this person over this person over this person, is that hierarchical structure of including some and not including others, is that the heart of God or... Is that something God designed in for a purpose? This is a key question, right? Did God set up humanity to be hierarchical? Is that what he wants? What part is from the fall? What part is from the curse? What part is from intention? I submit to you that Jesus Christ being at creation, for whom creation was designed, was far more interested in God's original intention than the effects of the fall, right? Secular history recounts, right? How mankind took the fall, ran with it. Israel's history showed how God designed around the curse. But the arrival of Jesus with his new covenant was starting over in a sense, yeah? Sure, he was going to work off the platform that already existed, which was a hierarchical, patriarchal reality. But he was going to breathe in creation intent back into his people because that's what he had come here to do. Jesus operated within an Old Testament framework but cast vision for a new era to come. Let me say that again. Jesus operated within an Old Testament framework but cast vision for a new era to come. Jesus did a lot of things very different than his culture. This is what we're gonna spend the majority of our time talking about. But one specific way he worked within culture was that he came into the world as a male. Jesus could have come as a female and we would be talking about the daughter of God, right? We wouldn't know any different. But he came as a male, why? What do we make of Jesus coming as a guy, the Father being referred to as male, and the Holy Spirit being referred to as he? These are all fair questions, right? As a matter of fact, I believe the answer goes beyond the obvious. The obvious was he was entering into a culture and it would have made more sense. If he came in any other way, it would have hijacked the entire process. But we got to go beyond that. I think there's something else in there. God is spirit, is he not? That means that he is just as much female as he is male. There is no male and female in spirit. So why did he refer to himself as male? All right. Also, why did God create the man first? Why did he create Adam first? That was not an accident. God didn't have to agree with any set standards that, oh, we always make guys first. There weren't guys. So he was doing the first one. So why all the maleness in God, in Adam? Yeah, this is what I want to talk about. It is my view that everything on this earth all flows from the concept of the Trinity. So I'm going to keep taking you back there and taking you back there and taking you back there. In my opinion, that which is the initiator, that which is the source, is referred to as male or father, right? 
Therefore, any portion of creation that is to be the first mover of things is the initiator. That's male. So God presents his initiator person of the Godhead as male and father. Adam was the initiator of creation in mankind, so he is considered male and father. Jesus was the initiator of the new covenant, new way, new life, so he came as male. Once again, when you set a pattern of initiator male, it reforms the question, not did God make man first to be important or whatever he created first was going to be male. Do you understand the reforming of that question? Because a lot of times everybody puts a stock in the idea that, no, 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 Adam was made first because he's more important. But what if the very concept of whoever was first was going to be male? Because male is going to be the initiator. Male's going to be the source, all right? If that is the case, Jesus would have to come as a male to follow the exact same pattern, all right? Because God designed gender and the order of creation, it matters. I think that we need to make sure that we never remove that. It was not accidental. It was not no big deal. It is a big deal. Gender matters. Order matters. I'm just not quite sure we know what it means. In the same way is I have no idea why the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. They are all three God. That mystery is not going to be revealed to me. There is no way for me to know why the Son couldn't be the Father, and the Father could be the Son. Aren't they all equal? Why did they have the roles that they had? I have no idea but I know it matters and I know it's valuable and I'm never going to wipe it clean and say they're all the same. They are not all the same. That distinction is important. But here's what's interesting on why Jesus also had to be male. Jesus is the second Adam. The Bible refers to it multiple times. Under the first Adam, all mankind fell into sin. Under the second Adam, all men were redeemed. Jesus was a second Adam. If he's a second Adam, he would need to be whatever Adam was, if that makes any sense. With Jesus, we go back to the garden. What Adam failed to do, Jesus had to come back and do perfectly, which was obedience from beginning to end. Jesus takes us all the way back to what Adam was supposed to be, which is fulfilled humanity in its perfect state. Fulfilled humanity is never going to be God, but it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be what God always intended. Jesus was that, shaped to bring into creation, shaped by the very hand of God, the naked hand of God that shaped Adam and Eve. Then also through the, what, the glove that, C.S. Lewis refers to the glove of Mary. Those two came together and formed the Son of God. And it came into our world. So Jesus takes us back to creation before the fall, before the curse, before all the chaos. So what was the initial creation intention? I would suggest that whatever Jesus began to lay out, accounting for his culture, adjusting for the necessary adaptations is going to be closer to what God intended in the first place than anything we had seen in the Old Testament. Would you agree with me that if Jesus is the son of God, he gets to set the new standard? Yes? That whatever plan he's rolling is more important than whatever plan that preexisted. Yes? All right. Considering all that context that we studied last week, just now, let's look with fresh eyes as to what Christ said and did. Nobody in the Old Testament would have done the things with women that Jesus did. He broke all sorts of rules. You're going to find out how much. We should be able to see a clear initiation and clarification 
of a new way of doing things, a progressive move towards a different mode of interaction. In other words, he was about to reset a new and improved structure for his people called the new Israel. The old covenant served for a time. Now he was going to create true Israel and that had new rules new regulations. But after thousands and thousands of years of a hierarchical, patriarchal, dominant design, Jesus started changing stuff. So we asked the question, would God change something this radical? Would he, for thousands of years, would he change something that is that rooted in the Jewish culture? Well, I don't know, he completely overturned the entire sacrificial system, which was everything they believed in. Would he have done that? He put his own death on the cross and said that he was the Passover lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. He'll change anything he wants at any moment. So what was different about Jesus' new way of doing things in his new Israel based on the pre-fall creation. There are three areas, and I'm gonna walk through those with you today. Number one, how he taught about women. How he taught about women. Number two, how he interacted with women during his ministry. How he interacted with women in his ministry. And number three, how he involved women in his ministry how he involved women in his ministry. Those three areas of which there will be multiple classifications are shockingly different than the prior pattern. So we're gonna walk through them one by one. Yeah, that's why we're here. Let's do that. Let's talk about Jesus's teaching about women. Jesus's teaching about women. That's number one. You're gonna wanna kind of indent here in your notes, right? You're gonna start writing all kinds of stuff. Here we go. It is very difficult to read the New Testament without a modern-day bias. We tend to look at things and we go, wow, that feels very restrictive. But when you look at it in context, it may have been very liberating at the time. You have to be very careful and check your bias at the door. When you're reading Scripture, you go back to the intention of the author. That's our job. That's what we do. We read stories that Jesus taught, and we immediately try to figure out how they apply to us, but unfortunately without recognizing that how he told stories, what characters he used, what points he made, contextually, it leaves us missing all these truth bombs that he kept dropping in his teaching ministry. So, the first one of those teachings I'll highlight for you is this. Positive examples in illustrations, examples, and parables. Positive uses of women in his stories. The first and most obvious was change was how he dealt with women as illustrations. He used them as primarily positive examples. That does not sound like a big deal. You'd kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. So he happened to mention a woman that, that found a lost coin. Who cares? You already missed it. Here's why. Jesus was a rabbi, yeah? What he taught how he acted would be seen in contrast to what all the other rabbis were doing. And if everybody was doing it one way and he did it a different way, that would be new, yes? That would be symbolic. That would be necessary to study, correct? All right. So how ancient rabbis viewed women is well-documented. There were a few rabbis that honored women, but in general, the attitude was very negative. Rabbinic thought was thick with the idea that women are separate. They are a separate being from men. So they would talk about them that way. For example, women were viewed as secondarily made and further from the divine. God shaped Adam out of nothing and then used a portion of Adam to create a woman. The idea was that's two steps away from God. That's how they viewed it. The main focus of instruction from rabbis was keeping women in the private home sphere. Women were excluded from studying, 
They were excluded from learning with the rabbis. They were excluded from learning with the men. They were simply to enable their men to fulfill their religious obligations. Does that make sense? Men had jobs to do. If you now study even rabbinic thought of today, there is still the mode that men are held to certain standards and the wife's job is to help him get there because she's not even bothered to be held to the same standards. Although women were talked about as more compassionate than men, that's about the only positive you got in rabbinic teaching. In general, women were linked with witchcraft, foolishness, dishonesty, licentiousness, and every other negative trait. That's how rabbis talked about women. Much was focused on Eve, what she did, and how what she did led to female disabilities. Women were seen as temptation problems, and it all got worse as time went on. As a matter of fact, if you look, there's still a prayer that is said today by male Jews. God, thank you for not making me a Gentile or a woman. The very idea of, man, I'm glad I whew, missed that one. But Jesus did it different. Jesus' positive use of women in his teaching was stunning. The first type, I would call metaphorically positive females. Metaphorically positive females, what do I mean? There's quite a few times that Jesus is telling a story and making a point, and he used women as positive characters in the illustration. So let's talk about the persistent widow of faith. You guys know this story? All right, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story uh, to his disciples. They should always pray and never give up. And here's his story. There was a woman, and she needed justice. But the judge was kind of a jerk. So she hounded this guy day after day after day, and he finally said, woman, I don't like you, I don't like God, I don't care about anybody, but you are driving me insane. So I will do what you asked. And Jesus said, pray like that. Whoa, 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 hold on. You just used a woman and said, do something like that? Yeah, we don't do that. Rabbis don't talk like that. Oh, but they do with Jesus. All right, here's another one. How about there's a parable of the kingdom growing. Luke tells this one right? But he records two stories. Jesus said there was a man who planted a mustard seed and it grew into a mighty tree and everybody came on, onto its branches, all the animals, and it was a big deal. It was growing really big. Oh, and there was a woman and she was baking and she put a little bit of leaven in there and the leaven went through the whole lump. And you go, yeah, I don't get it. He paralleled a male version and a female version and linked them together just to tell a parable. Why? Equality. That was his whole point. Every other rabbi only used a male example. Jesus partnered it with a female example. All right. How about the woman who found her coin? Right? It's about how sinners are getting saved and their celebration, right? Jesus uses three stories. One about a woman with a coin, one about a father with a son, and one about a shepherd with a sheep. But in using those three examples, he keys in and allows a woman to be one of those and nobody else would. How about the queen of the South wisdom? Right, and I have no idea if I should put her in the living example because she was a real person, but she was long dead by the time Jesus talked about her. But here's what he said. Jesus said, in the end of days, the queen that came to visit Solomon to gain more wisdom her example would embarrass all those who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah because they didn't want to seek anything greater. In other words, he shamed everyone listening to him that did not believe in him and said, a woman did better than you. Nobody does that. Those are fighting words, yeah? All right, here's the second category of that. Living female examples to follow. If some of them are metaphorical and we're just using them in a story and they're not real people, what about real people? Yeah, he did that too. How about the first one? The poor woman in the temple who gave all she had. Do you know this story? Jesus takes them on a field trip, all his little disciples. They're all hanging out there and people are putting money, huge bags of money in there. And then Jesus said, look, watch her. She puts in two small copper coins that equal up to a penny. He said, she is given more than all of those. 
because she gave everything she had, meaning her trust in the Lord was superior to all of the wealthy donors in the temple. That was a woman example shaming all of the wealthy male examples. Ah, that's pretty tough. How about the Syrophoenician woman's faith? You remember this? She comes to him asking for help for her demon-possessed daughter back home. He said, woman, you're a Gentile. You see, I got a thing where I talk to Jews first. We'll get to you guys later. We don't give that stuff to the dogs yet. And she said, ah, but even puppies can pick up what falls off the table, yeah? And he was like, oh, snap. That was awesome. That was pretty good. And he turned around to all the people sitting there, which were all males, and he said, did you see that? I'm not even seeing that kind of faith in you guys. And he said, go home, your daughter is healed. Her brilliance, her wit, instantly grabbed his attention. And he goes, yep, I'm not seeing that anywhere else. And she wasn't even Jewish. How about the third one, the woman at the well? Her evangelism. The Holy Spirit made sure to incorporate this story where a whole village came out to hear Jesus preach to them because of the testimony of an outcast female. That's pretty powerful. How about Martha's acknowledgement of who Jesus was at Lazarus's tomb? Do you guys have any idea what she said? Remember, she's super ticked off because had Jesus been there, her brother wouldn't have died. She's an emotional wreck. But right in the middle of it, Jesus said, he'll raise again. She's like, I know, the Messiah will do that. And he said, hun, you understand what you're saying, right? And this is what she said. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. The only person that acknowledged that in all of scripture was Peter. Peter, Martha, same phrase, two different genders. Huh. Okay, here's another one. How about protective teachings about women? Just going to give you two examples. Protective teachings about women. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a number of teachings where they were trying to protect women from bad dudes. Because once again, instead of saying that women were equal, they were protecting that women were not equal. Does that make sense? All right, so Jesus actually did two of those, and I just want to highlight those. He did a number of them, but I'm going to only highlight two. The first one is he said this, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to go into the kingdom of God or heaven maimed than not at all. Well, here's what's intriguing about that. That was way more extreme than anything of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you remember you had the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were don't do any bad action. Jesus said your thoughts matter. Was that for guys or for... Protection of women. Yeah, that was protection for women. I would suggest to you that it was that teaching that allowed everyone to understand that he had a mixed group of disciples with men and women together. And they were thinking, that guy holds a pretty tight ship. I'm not too worried about it. Hmm. Here's the other teaching. See, we always think about divorce teaching in scripture, while well, that was limiting and blah, 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 and you can only do that in case of adultery and a bunch of my friends are divorced. And everyone kind of go, oh, I don't know what to do about all that stuff. The natural course of things in the ancient world was that men could ditch their wives for any reason and no comment. When Israel came onto the map, God said, uh-uh, you can't do that. Because the minute Anyone knew that a woman had been prior married, she was damaged goods and would not be cared for. So Judaism instituted a protection. You have to give her a certificate of divorce, which means she had licensed reason to go get remarried, and that would allow her to be cared for. Jesus took that one whole step further, and he put in and said, whoa, 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 you don't ever do that. 
You don't leave your wife. You don't divorce your wife. You don't do that. You see, you don't get to just use women and move on. Ah. How about this? Juxtaposing men and women character lessons. Boy, that's a mouthful. Juxtaposing men and women character lessons, right? Not only did Jesus use women as positive examples, but he went further. Jesus would contrast the actions and attitudes of women versus men, right? I mentioned that one about the Syrophoenician woman and going, man, you guys aren't even coming up with that kind of stuff. But I'm gonna give you two examples. And once you see this, it's gonna be really hard to unsee it. Let me give you an example. The Pharisee and the sinful anointing woman. You guys know this story? They're at a Pharisee's house, they're having a big party, and a woman comes in and she was known to be a sinner. Likely she was a prostitute. Everybody knew it. She was hovering in the outside, but then she moved into the crowd and began to weep at Jesus' feet. And she broke expensive ointment and she began to anoint his feet. Everyone judged him. At the end, he looked at the leader, Simon the Pharisee, and he said, Simon, I walked into your house you never washed my feet, had your servants wash my feet. You never gave me any oil. You never did anything. This woman has done greater than you. Yee. That's embarrassing because a Pharisee was the best of the best of the dudes. Women weren't Pharisees. And he said, yeah, she's doing something you wouldn't do. Here's another one. And there's a number of these. Have you ever contrasted Nicodemus and the woman at the well? Here's what's interesting about it. Nicodemus was a high-level Sanhedrin council Pharisee. In other words, he was legit. He was for real. Everybody respected that guy. The woman at the well was a Gentile in the sense that she was a Samaritan. She was an outcast. She had low status. So you have two polar opposite people but what was the result of their interaction with Jesus? Nicodemus came secretly at night, told no one, and went away. She heard him publicly, went publicly, and led her whole village to him. That's embarrassing. Why are these two stories recorded to be put together? It's very important. Jesus was doing a very new thing. Yeah? All right, we're on category number two. Category number two, right? Remember I told you the first one was his teaching, right? His teaching about women. Here we go. Jesus' personal and ministry interaction with women. Jesus' personal and ministry interaction with women. It was different than any rabbinic contemporary, right? He called them his friends. He used honoring titles. He called them to be more than their traditional roles. He spoke to them in public. He spoke to them in private, and he did even more than that. And that's what I want to highlight. Those are just the examples. Let's go into the depth. Yeah? Here we go. First thing, Jesus crossed social lines for women. Jesus crossed social lines for women. Jesus seemed to be absolutely willing to break societal expectations, taboos, when the situation called for it. He wasn't doing it willy-nilly. He only did it when it was important. Right? We know he interacted with Samaritans. That was a no-no. No Jews were supposed to do that. He did that. We know that he even highlighted Samaritans in the Good Samaritan story as a positive example. No rabbis would do that. They were the hated half-breed of the nation. But he did the same thing with women. He didn't have to. He could have commissioned a female team to go and do the ministry to women. But he didn't. He handled it himself. He personally ministered to women in a culture that said he could not. So let me give you some examples. He healed a crippled woman in a synagogue. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue when he observed a lady who had been disabled and bent over for 18 years. He didn't shout across the room. He called her up and laid hands on her in church. Are you just trying to tick people off? You don't do any of that stuff in society. You certainly don't do it at church. But he did. He did it in front of everyone. They were already mad at him for doing anything on the Sabbath. But he added this on top of it. Here's another example. When we talk about the woman at the well, this is very important. He met with her alone. 
He is a single dude. He is a rabbi. Every one of those should have negated his ability. If you remember, he told his boys, you go on ahead. And they're like, uh, okay. When they came back, they were super awkward. They didn't want to get in the conversation. They're like, I don't know what's happening right now. I've always been taught this as a no-no, right? And he was engaging a woman in spiritual discussion, talking about where you should worship, how you should handle things. You don't talk about that. Men don't talk about that with women, but he did. How about letting a bleeding woman touch him? Yeah, is that a problem? Yeah, that's a huge problem. All three synoptic gospels record this story. He's swamped by people, a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years secretly sneaks up, right? And she wants to touch that hem of his robe. She's instantly healed. Jesus feels power go out from him. And then what? He stops everything and says, somebody touch me, calls her out. Now you go, man, that's totally mean, right? Why not just let her sneak away? She had not been allowed to go to temple for a really long time. Unless she was publicly deemed clean, she would never be able to go. Jesus wasn't about to let her go without raising her status. So he stopped everything and said, she's good to go. That's pretty powerful. But here's what's interesting about that story. He could have walled himself off where women couldn't get anywhere near him. There's a lot of ministries that do that, are there not? He could have walled himself off and said, they don't belong around me. They shouldn't have the honor of touching me. But yet he had so many people thronging him that when he said, someone touched me, no one said, oh, I saw this one woman. There were tons of women able to connect with him. He was wide open to their access. He established relationship with her by highlighting her and honoring her in front of society. Here's the last one. He touched a dead girl. If you thought bleeding woman made you unclean for temple, <laughs> dead people are worse. So sure enough, Jesus goes home to touch a girl who had already died. Jesus said, oh, she's just sleeping. Everyone makes fun of him because they know full well that she's been dead for a while and touching dead bodies was a no-no. But what was more important than social taboo? The ministry to the young lady. Jesus wasn't going to allow any rules to stop his healing of his child. Amen? All right. Here's a second example of Jesus interacting with women. You ready? Here we go. Jesus directly and personally taught women. Jesus directly and personally taught women. He did that in four recorded times. Martha on the way to the tomb of Lazarus, the group of wailing women on the way to the crucifixion, Mary Magdalene post-resurrection, and Mary at his feet. We're going to talk about that extensively in the third one, so let's go to category number three, all right? We did category number one was teaching number two, right, was uh, his um, involvement around them, now his involvement of them in his ministry. Number three, Jesus' involvement of women in his ministry. Jesus involved women in his ministry in five key ways. But before we do that, let me handle an elephant in the room. Jesus' day-to-day ministry was with 12 dudes. Is that correct? Right? And once again, I apologize for the use of that word. I say dude a lot. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that his core were all male. That's a big deal, right? It's not like a fallen bias Jesus gets to do whatever he wants. He's already shown he'll break taboo if he needs to, but he didn't. Why? There are three key reasons why they were all men. Number one, avoiding the immediate rejection of the gospel. This is about culture and timing. The primary reason the apostles were all men was likely because of their ability to reach their culture. Women would be rejected outright. It would have hindered the initial gospel message push. That was a cultural decision that would later be shifted. But the sake of the gospel message superseded the equality message. It's all about timing. God was progressively revealing. Remember I talked about 
maturing revelation. He was revealing little by little to his church of his intention for women through redemption and design, but he hadn't got that far yet. It's a similar reason why Jesus didn't choose Gentiles or Samaritans either. Everyone always stops and go, they were all 12 dudes. Yeah, they were also all 12 Jews. Nobody ever seems to argue, man, I can't believe there's a Samaritan in leadership. Nobody ever argues, why are Gentiles in leadership today? At that time, it was a way bigger deal. They would have rather had a Jewish woman than a Gentile in their church. But we have it all different, all backwards. Here's the second reason. If you want to talk about historically the main reason why they were men, there you go. The 12 apostles were to be the new covenant's version of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus was resetting and starting all over again. The Old Testament had, right, Levi and Simeon and Judah and Asher and Naphtali. And you, got, you remember the 12 boys? They were all the heads of their households. Well, when you launched the new covenant for the new church and the new Israel, you need the new 12 heads. They all needed to be male. Does that make sense? It was a tie-in to history. Third reason, Jesus always operated from a fall to redemption pattern. From a fall to redemption pattern. Jesus worked on the Old Testament framework. God set up the sacrificial system to lead us to the new covenant. Jesus started with men that would lead us to the equality of genders. How do I know that? Because they were only Jewish. Clearly the plan changed. Eventually, early on, Samaritans and Gentiles are integrated into leadership as equals. Same thing happened with women. Once again, I'm going to highlight how we saw slavery for a while. There's no way to ignore the ability to say, for a long time, people use scripture to back up slavery because Paul said, slaves, obey your masters. Nobody seems to be arguing that anymore. Why? Wasn't it always the right reading to say that slavery was wrong? Then why are we... Anyway, let me talk about the five key ways. The five key ways that Jesus involved women in his ministry. Number one, Jesus had female disciples. Jesus had female disciples. You can write down Matthew 27, 55 through 56, and Mark 15, 40 through 41. What is a disciple? It is a follower of Christ. Disciples vary in their roles, their connection to Christ, but the basic idea was to follow the teachings, follow the lifestyle, and be duplicates of him and become teachers yourself. That's what it means to make disciples of all nations. Okay? So, I'm going to explain how we know he had women disciples. First of all, you know that there was more disciples than the 12. Is that correct? All right, Luke 6, 13 and 17. Luke 6, 13 and 17. When the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. So if you got a group of them and you pull out 12, there obviously were more than 12. Is that correct? All right, cool. He says, he named them apostles. Go to verse 17. And when he came down with the 12, he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. So how many did he have? A great crowd of them. Jesus had a lot of disciples. All right, here's another one. Write this down, Matthew 12, 46 through 50. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. Jesus is sitting there teaching his disciples and his mom and his brother show up at the door. Hey, we wanna to talk to Jesus. He's like, I'm busy. They're like, no, 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 they wanna to talk to you right now. Do you remember what he said to his group? These are my mother and my brothers. Here's the problem. You can't say that to a group of all men. You cannot refer to a Jewish man as a mother. It doesn't work. So in that group, whoever that group was being personally taught by Jesus were females. All right, let's keep moving forward. Mary was accepted as a full disciple. Mary was accepted as a full disciple, Luke 10, 38 through 39. It says this, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
Okay, we'll just end right there. Now, contrary to the popular notion that this is only a story about being distracted about many things, right? Uh, who's going to cook and all that stuff. The bigger problem was that Mary was in the male portion of the house. Women were supposed to be in the back room. Guys were in the front room. Mary was in the wrong spot. She was sitting in the front room with the guys, and that was ticking Martha off because she's going, woman, you know how we do this. You're doing this. I don't know if you're doing it for show. I don't know what your problem is. How about you get busy doing what women do? Ah. N.T. Wright. You guys familiar with the theologian N.T. Wright? Here's what he said. What Mary did is that you are being a student, picking up the teacher's wisdom and learning. In that very practical world, you would never do this for the sake of just informing your own mind and heart, but in order to be a teacher and a rabbi yourself. Once again, if you don't read the context, it looks really sweet that she thought she would sit down for a devotion. Problem is, it was way bigger than that. She was breaking rules. Wright believes that's one of the reasons why there were so many women in possessions of leadership and responsibility in the early church was because of Mary's example. Mary sat there as a full disciple. Write this one down, John 20, verse 16. You guys remember when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus risen? Do you remember what she called him? Rabboni. You know what that means? My teacher and leader. That was her normal way of talking to him. Why would she refer to him as her teacher and leader if she was not a disciple? Hmm. Here's another weird thing. Jesus even had married women in his ministry seemingly without their spouses. That is super weird, okay? In a day, an age where women were only supposed to focus on the home, their husbands were their protectors and guardians, in a culture where a woman was property of the man, had no interaction with mixed society outside the home, Jesus has married women in his ministry without their guys. He names two of them, Joanna, the wife of Herod, Herod Stewart, and Salome, the wife of Zebedee. We know that she entered in with her boys in ministry, but her husband still ran the fishing business. What is she doing there? Number two, Jesus allowed women to be part of his grand story. When Jesus was a little baby and he was brought to the temple, you guys remember who announced his arrival? A guy named Simeon, right? Oh, and who? Anna the prophetess. Why did you have a man and a woman there? I'm sure that was an accident, yeah? How about Mary, his mom? Was she pretty involved? Yeah. What about Martha hosting and serving special meals? She does that multiple times. That's not new in that culture. But once again, Jesus had his guys do the Passover meal all by themselves. He could have walled himself off and only had men do it, but he didn't. How about the woman at the foot of the cross? The woman at the tomb? The woman at the resurrection? Women were involved in every single part of his story. Number three, women funded his ministry. Women funded his ministry. Women contributed financially. They supported Christ and the apostles. It was women who paid for them to be traveling evangelists. And the Bible records five of the women by name and studies reveal that they traveled all the way through the nation with him. They were not just writing a check from a distance. They were up close and personal. Number four, women acted as Jesus's priests. Women acted as Jesus's priests. You go, what? I don't remember that. Well, two women anointed him with oil. Do you know who normally anoints with oil? Men, priests. You don't just go around and anoint like that. He even said, this is an anointing for my burial. Once again, women could do that once they were dead. That's fine. Number five, women were used as reliable witnesses in multiple ways and multiple times. Women in Jesus' day weren't considered legitimate, reliable witnesses at all in court but Jesus used women for evangelism. He used women to proclaim his true identity. He used women to be faithful witnesses of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And women were commanded to proclaim his resurrection to the boys. Here's the great irony, you guys, the great apostolic irony. Women were the apostles to the apostles. That's very weird. And when you match the women apostle and the male apostle 
the women did it better. I'll give you an example why, right? This is another insight from N.T. Wright. He said, under his assessment, the men failed as followers of Christ and the women didn't. You see, what does apostle mean? It means sent one. Go tell people the Messiah has raised from the dead. That's what apostles do. But the women saw him first and went to go tell the men. So they're the apostles to the apostles. And then the other thing that's interesting is that all the guys, when Jesus is arrested, bail out and run away. Peter very clearly denies Jesus. And yet, who was sitting at the foot of the cross? All the women. Hmm. But Jesus wasn't done when he planned to leave this planet, right? He had more. Here's his beyond ministry plan. His beyond ministry plan. The great commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in Acts 1, 8 is non-gender specific. It commands leadership, utilizing the power of the spirit, making disciples by men and women. It involves males and females doing discipleship, baptizing, and teaching. That was his last command before he left. Then Pentecost. He launches the church with Pentecost, and women were there. They were at the inception of the church. They received everything the men received. When the tongues of fire came down and rested, it says it rested on every single one of them. It didn't hover over the guys and not the girls. It hovered over everyone. Do you know what a, the tongue of fire was? It was a personal Shekinah glory, what only Moses and the priests were ever allowed to see, and everyone got an individual one. Men and women, you go, well, hey, you know what? There was a lot of people. They had a lot of friends. They were just in that upper room. They were just all hanging out together. That is incorrect. Acts 2.17, Peter said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants, and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. It wasn't accidental, it was purposeful. It was prophetic. Women were part of the launch of the early church leadership. Bottom line, Jesus began a new thing, yeah? He began a new thing. How he operated was so different. All the gospel authors are writing this stuff down. Why are they writing it down? Jesus said tons of stuff in three years, but they wrote this stuff down. We have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus do ministry so differently, if not than to point a better way for operating as the people and kingdom of God? How much of the curse has been reversed by the cross? There's a super crazy passage called Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The distortion of the fall was made right again in Jesus. But understand, the equality of creation intent did not negate role or gender. When Jews and Gentiles became equal, they didn't become the same ethnicity. One was still Jewish, one was still Gentile, right? When they became united in Christ, that did not wipe out that God made Adam as a male, Eve as a female. Those are not wiped out. So this is my problem with the sameness argument, right? Oh, well, this just means everything's the same. There's nobody. God doesn't see gender. That is completely inaccurate. Of course he does. And we need to be fully, powerfully what he built us to be. Why didn't Jesus talk more about this, right? If this was such a big deal, why didn't Jesus talk more about it? If he was really going to change stuff, why didn't he talk about it more? You guys, as important as this issue is, it's not salvation. And Jesus had one primary task. Everything else was secondary. 
He didn't get to talk about a bunch of stuff. That's why he said, you know what's really good about it? I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and he's gonna help fill you in on everything that I missed. He's gonna help remind you of everything that I said. I got a lot of stuff that really needs to change around here. But the Holy Spirit, I only got three years with you. He's got the rest of your lifetime and he'll reveal the truth. 